That was some of the music from the Monteverde Opera, L'Orfeo. Welcome to Words and Pictures, the show about the narrative arts. I'm your host, S.W. Concer, and today we're spotlighting a new opera company here in Portland. Our guests are Christopher Mataliano. He's the artistic director of Orpheus PDX. He also spent 16 years as the general director of Portland Opera before taking on this new project. Chris, welcome to Words and Pictures. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Good to see you again. Thank you. And uh, Julia Sheridan has been a publicist and communications manager for Cirque du Soleil, the Portland Opera, and the vocal ensemble Capella Romana. She's now the publicity consultant for Orpheus PDX. Julia, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Conch. It's good to see you. Chris, let's start with you. Uh, your inaugural season opened last week with the Monteverde Opera L'Orfeo. It did indeed. Uh, it was uh, one of the more exciting weekends of my life. A project I'm very proud of, a year and a half in planning, and we had a terrific audience response. And this wonderful new company that I dreamed up, uh, we're off to a good start. Now, I've heard that this opera, this Monteverde opera, is considered one of the earliest operas to be performed widely. That's correct. Yeah, it was composed in 1607, a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, and really, it, it, that's, that's, a, that's actually a very apt observation. It, it probably is, I'm certain it is, the, the earliest opera that's still performed today on a, on a regular basis. Uh, a lot of his operas did not survive, uh, but three of them are performed regularly. And uh, Orfeo, it's, it's his treatment of the Orpheus legend, obviously. Um, it's a uniquely beautiful and unusual piece, and it's performed periodically by opera companies. And I, I chose this very specifically to be our first opera we produced at Orpheus PDX. Well, Orpheus is a favorite subject of opera mm -hmm. composers. He is a well-beloved member of the Greek pantheon. Yep. Orpheus's music could charm the animals and inspire the trees to dance. Mm -hmm. And he was taught to play the, the lyre by none other than Apollo. Right, uh, who, who is a character in, in this treatment of the opera. Apollo, um, there's a very beautiful duet for Apollo and Orpheus that brings the opera to a close. And I gotta say, you're mentioning that aspect of the story is very apt. I mean, not only is the Orpheus legend one of the great love stories, but the idea that it's about the power of music, the power of art, the power of beauty to touch the soul, uh, in which he does in the second act, right? Where he, as you, as you mentioned, he goes to Hades and soothes the savage beasts of, of the underworld as he's trying to reconnect with his, with his wife. That's very much the idea behind this company. We wanted to create a different type of opera company that's very intimate, that's emotionally very direct, and that really does touch the soul of the community through the beauty of music, music and singing. You know, great, great music sung beautifully is very much what we're focused on in a very intimate setting at Lincoln Hall. So, yeah, you mentioned Lincoln Hall. This is a medium-sized venue. It's on the campus of Portland State University. Mm -hmm. And the real selling point is that the acoustics are fantastic. Yeah, it's my favorite opera house in Portland. It's my favorite place to experience opera. And as you mentioned, the acoustics are wonderful. They're very warm, they're very full, they're very present. And there's not a bad seat in the house. It's only 475 seats. And so um, for me, 
it's the perfect place for for us to launch this new company because of the intimacy. Intimacy is something that people don't necessarily associate with opera, good, goodness knows. And so we wanted very much uh, to focus on programming that would be very intimate and emotionally direct in nature. And thus our tagline, if I may say so, Orpheus PDX, where opera gets intimate. Yeah, even the orchestra pit is kind of intimate. I mean, it's big enough for, right. you know, a, a few dozen players, mm-hmm. but it's not its not big enough for, say, grand opera, for, no. you know, Aida or something. Correct. No, no, we're, we're skipping the entire 19th century in our programming model. We want to do... We want to do an early bel canto work, so somewhere between Monteverdi in the 1600s and, and Mozart, maybe Rossini around 1800. And then we jump ahead to this moment. Uh, so we're skipping all of the 19th century. And no one loves Carmen or Madame Butterfly or La Traviata more than I do, but those pieces need to be done in a large theater. So thus, uh, the Keller Auditorium is just fine uh, for those large-scale works, we wanted to focus on programming that was far more immediate and intimate and have a great modern work and a beautiful early bel canto work. So, yeah, I suppose we should mention, as long as you've brought up the 20th century, that you've got a new production coming up towards the end of August, and it is a Philip Glass opera. You have produced a number of Philip Glass operas over the years. Uh, Tell us about this one. Well, this is The Fall of the House of Usher. It's based on the Edgar Allan Poe short story. I think it's among Glass's greatest works. And God knows he's such a prolific composer. So many symphonies, I think over 25 operas at this point. And of course, his film scores and his dance music. But I think this is one of his greatest works. There's something about the world of Edgar Allan Poe, the amount that goes unspoken, the subtext, all the the mystery behind the text and his stories that I think Glass's music is just a perfect fit for. There's something uniquely haunting, hauntingly beautiful. It's a very beautiful score, but it's very strange and haunting. So this has been on my short list for many years, um, this work by Philip Glass, and, and it will be the fourth opera of his that I've produced. But this is the one I've been really wanting to get to. And in a way, starting this company, uh, what's incredibly liberating and very exciting for me is I get to program works that I haven't quite gotten to yet. Now, uh, I guess you and Philip Glass are both fans of silent film and film noir, which uh, Mm -hmm. we are also on this show. And he's done some scores for silent films. You're working to bring some film noir elements into this production, this opera production. Well, it's being directed by one of my favorite directors out in the business named Kevin Newberry. And Kevin's concept, which, you know, uh, your listeners can read about on our website, OrpheusPDX.org. There's a whole page on the opera, its background, and specifically the designs and the look of this and Kevin Newberry's approach to it. You know, of the short stories of, of Edgar Allan Poe, yeah, many of them derive their power by what's inferred, by what's not, not actually stated. It's all in the subtext. What's left unsaid is kind of what is so fascinating about his works. And even for Poe, this story is by far the most undefined. I mean, it's very mysterious as to actually what is happening. What is the relationship between these two men? 
what does the fall actually refer to the fall of the house of usher is it literally a house collapsing a mansion collapsing as it does in the short story or is it more an internal nervous breakdown that the character is going through um who is the sister uh what is her relationship with her brother roderick usher so the piece itself is wide open to interpretation and kevin is focusing on Palm Springs in 1969, very specifically, and how that era was uh, uh, the the Hollywood stars that were not heterosexual had Palm Springs as a haven. And so people like Rock Hudson and Liberace knew that they could drive the two hours from Los Angeles uh, to Palm Springs and have a safe place to be themselves. And so in Kevin's approach, the character of Usher is someone that's going through a crisis, perhaps, and even this remains a little undefined. I don't want to give too much away about the production, but perhaps he's been outed when you think of someone like Rock Hudson, who was known as the great leading man, romantic leading man in all those movies with Doris Day. Uh, And is, is he now in a personal crisis and a professional crisis? And he reaches out to his friend, William, who's the narrator in the short story, to come join him. And in Kevin's concept, William, his childhood friend, his only friend, is comfortable with who he is as a gay man. And, and he, he visits uh, Roderick and we have this contrast between two men that are perhaps former lovers, one of whom has uh, become fully realized as a human being uh, and his own identity and one who's not. And that's part of the crisis and the conflict that gets explored in the opera. One of many things that get that gets explored in this particular production. Well, you mentioned uh, your resident stage director, Kevin Newbery, and um, I'm not usually a fan of minimalism. I'm an Art Nouveau kind of guy. I like lots uh-huh. of filigree, but I do appreciate whenever artists manage to do less with more. And that does seem to be one of the aesthetics at Orpheus PDX. Indeed. Uh, for those that were fortunate enough to see the Orfeo, I mean, it's a, it's a very simple and direct experience. I mean, the design is quite simple, but uh, that director, equally creative, uh, Chaz Rader Scheiber, um, set it in an outdoor wedding, a modern outdoor wedding in a beautiful garden. And the story of, uh, of Orpheus's journey begins and ends there. And the setting is really no more than um, a grass carpet and a table and some beautiful ornaments and a tree and a neon sign that said, till death do us part. And that was present the entire evening. And otherwise, it was all about the lighting. Uh, a, a brilliant designer that I've worked with a number of times, Connie Yoon, her lighting for both uh, Orfeo was was a big part of the experience, as it will be. She's also lighting um, the fall of the House of Usher. So yeah, the the setting for Usher is essentially um, the outdoor patio of a of a mid century architecture gem of a house in Palm Springs with a pool and some lawn furniture and the facade of the house itself um, sort of upstage where you could see occasionally characters come and go. But for the most part, it's, it's all outside in the patio with people probably in bathing suits that remains to be seen. And when I uh, attended the production of L'Orfeo, it seemed that uh, the artists were helping move some of the scenic elements around the stage. 
That was intentional. That was that was the concept of Chaz, you know, our, our director, who wanted very much the workings of the theater to be exposed. So you saw the 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 singers getting in and out of costume. Uh, he did a very creative, which I thought was one of my favorite moments, where the long wedding table where people have been, you know, whining and dining, suddenly turns on its side and turns into the boat. For Caronte, the you know the, in, in the underworld, who is there uh, at the River Styx, and so uh, it, it ended up uh, being all done by the actors. That was intentional, um, where Chaz wanted to reveal the inner workings of the theater uh, done by the performers. Well, no spoilers, but this version of the Orpheus myth doesn't have the downbeat ending I was expecting. No getting torn apart by maenads. Right. Right. It's funny. Most of the versions of the Orpheus legend, whether it's Gluck or Monteverdi, yeah, they, what you read about when you read the myth about years, you know, I don't know how, how, how much later it is that he gets torn up into pieces. Uh, that, uh, that thankfully has been avoided in both of the operatic versions that I'm familiar with. Let's hear a little bit more music from the Orpheus PDX production of Monteverde's L'Orfeo. You're listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Conser. And we're talking today with Christopher Mataliano and Julia Sheridan. Chris is the artistic director of Orpheus PDX, and Julia is the publicity consultant. Now, Julia, you're a big believer in crossover media. You brought dozens of Northwest comics artists together to uh, draw their versions of operatic scenes back in the day. That was just a good publicist taking notice of potential opportunities, mainly to introduce people to opera that might never think of going. Mm -hmm. And to when you bring in either people that are interested in comic book, that are comic book artists or or they make beer, whatever these communities in Portland, I just wanted to let them know that opera exists in Portland and it's good opera. So mm -hmm. it, last week when uh, it was really heartwarming to see the reception that Chris got from Portland when he came out to give his pre-curtain speech, this community I, I believe is really happy to have him back. So yes, I, you know, the comic book artists was just something that there's so many of them in Portland. Yeah. And I wanted them to, to introduce them to opera. And we, we got a few converts out of it. I don't like to push 
opera. I just, I like to bring them to it and let them figure it out for themselves how much there is to love. When we were getting all of those comic artists to interpret uh, the operas that we would produce, one of my favorite walks to take would be down the hall by Julia's office where there would just be a wall of images, uh, all, I mean, and of wildly different styles. I had no idea that that the comic book, you know, the, the, the comic book art that, that's being produced in Portland area ran so deep. Uh, so that was quite an education for me. So yeah, that was, uh, that was a particularly inspiring period of time. <laughs> I, I would say not only did you maybe get uh, some converts to opera from the comics world, but maybe uh, some converts to comics from the opera world because uh -huh, they were uh -huh. it was very popular displays. And it's uh, no accident that the idea went on to be adopted by many other opera companies around the country. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have heard of that happening. I still think Portland's was the best. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I noticed that when we displayed that artwork in the lobby, people spent a lot of time looking at it. They didn't just walk by and look, kind of look at the sketches. They really looked carefully because there were so many different styles. Well, I think that opera and comics certainly have a lot in common. They have, there's a lot of drama. There's often a lot of splashy visuals and mm -hmm. uh, some of the same sensibilities. Sometimes things can be over the top a little bit. Mm -hmm. I was always impressed by uh, the emotional content that the comic artists would capture in their drawings that would, uh, you know, that really would take me by surprise. You'd, you'd, you'd turn a page, you'd suddenly see an image that was really very gripping, that would that visually would somehow capture what the music was expressing. Um, so that was, again, a, a real education for me and very enlightening in terms of um, the visual artists and what they're capable of extracting from what they experience in the theater. Uh, I always look forward to them. And I must say, uh, uh, my, my daughter, I think she has all of the ones that uh, we printed up from that era, and, and they're just they're just around the house. Uh, it's great. They're they're on my walls and yeah. in my in my photos and such. I, I was lucky enough to end up with a lot of the originals, and uh, one of our guys went on to write a whole book about about Gettysburg. Uh huh. He did a graphic novel about it, and he sent me a copy. I thought that was pretty cool. I, I would be not doing. I, I would not be doing my job if I did not also mention that uh, we have English captions at all our performances. I know that foreign languages, you know, they often come up on surveys as the reason people don't go to the opera, and it's unfortunate that the general public might still not be aware that all professional opera companies now uh, have English captions. We have a screen above the stage. So yep. as they're singing, like at, in Orfeo, when they were singing in Italian, there was an English translation running above the stage, just like seeing a foreign movie. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've I served on the board of, of Opera America for six years, and I would bring up this point all the time to my colleagues in the profession and say, guys, girls, everyone, we've done a really lousy job of, of making the public aware that they should not be afraid of the language barrier. Um, we, we need to somehow you know, make a concerted effort to do a, a major communication campaign to the general public that is 
don't be afraid of the opera if you don't speak German, Italian, French, Russian, whatever, because you could just be dropped at any performance and know exactly what's happening. So that's my plug for English captions, and now I'm done. <laughs> well, and my, my plug for that was last night. I mean, the captions were really good, but this is an opera that I almost didn't even need them. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, yeah. it's very emotional, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I wonder, like, when were we, when we, the general universe, uh, when does one become familiar with the Orpheus legend? Was it grade school? Was it high school? Like, when did we learn about Maybe it wasn't until Philip Glass's Orphée. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I, I'm a Catholic school girl. You right. know, I guess they didn't tell us about those kinds of things. <laughs> um, so for me, it was well into adulthood. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, but Julia's point is, is, is well taken. I, it's, it's hard to imagine anyone being dropped at the performances we just did of Orfeo and just not following the story, even if they did not, if we did not have English captions, because it just is so clear what happened. Intimate. And that was really apparent last week. Yeah. And, and and opera singers act these days, Mm -hmm. you know, that's Mm -hmm. another myth. that's just got to be blown away now because actors can act. So when you're close, the music is beautiful. The singers can act. It's really an experience. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that, because again, it gets back to what I said earlier about people not associating intimacy with opera at all. And uh, Julia's point, a lot of people have said that, that, oh my God, I just felt like I was right in the action uh, with, and especially people with- people leaning forward. Yes. In yes. the rows, you know, and, yeah. and that's, that's always a good sign. Yeah, yeah. Well, we live in a place that's wide open to innovative and informal theater companies and visual arts. Katie Taylor and Erica Melton of uh, Opera Theater Oregon have been guests on the show. Orpheus PDX is carving out a space in between the sort of uh, super scrappy local opera companies and the, and the big grand opera. You've, um, you've mm-hmm. got national talent working together with you, and you're generally making this sort of uh, like a festival summer season rather than mm-hmm. the uh, mm-hmm. repertory season. Yeah. Uh, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, I, I, I see our work as complementary to the work being done by Portland Opera and by these wonderful sort of uh, rogue companies in the best sense of the word, these wonderfully creative, scrappy companies like uh, Renegade Opera, Opera Theatre Oregon. Um, uh, there's Opera on Tap, which is a fun pop-up thing where people sing arias at bars around Portland. So we we want to be complementary to the scene here. Um, we're performing for them, at least now we perform only in August because that's when Lincoln Hall is available. And I wanted very much that to be our home, that wonderfully intimate Lincoln Hall. So we're sort of in the off season of other opera companies. And we offer something that's uniquely different from the other opera companies here, which is very high level professional talent that's brought in from all over the world to Portland for the month of August, in addition to wonderful local artists. And our programming model is, as I mentioned earlier, either a early bel canto work, beautifully sung, beautifully produced, beautiful music, and a recent modern masterpiece of this season. It happens to be the fall of the House of Usher. Speaking of, uh, of companies around the country, uh, your spouse, Claire Burovac, she's the artistic director at the New Orleans Opera Association. 
Indeed. Uh, uh, Claire was very heavily courted about two years ago by a number of opera companies that were interested in her being the general director. And she, I, I, don't, I don't think she would mind my mentioning this, but she fielded three different offers for a general director position. And uh, she accepted this position in New Orleans Opera, where she's both general and artistic director of the New Orleans Opera. So our home uh, is in New Orleans, where she runs the opera company there. Uh, but our two daughters are here in the Portland area, and we recently became grandparents. We have a grandson now. So we divide our time between New Orleans and, and Portland. But yeah, uh, it's a unique, uh, I must say, I, I can't think of any other marriage that I know of where we're both are general directors of opera companies. Uh, uniquely different companies for sure, but uh, that's uh, the way this has evolved. Claire will, you know, we sit down to dinner sometimes, she'll make a stand and say, okay, we're going to have a meal together and neither one of us is going to talk about opera. So we, So that's kind of a... A rule we have that will say we'll take an hour or two off and like no talk of the profession. Um, yeah, how does that go? <laughs> how does that work out? Uh, we, we're marginally <laughs> successful because um, we have other interests. It's been great. Well, people would say you're pretty clever for finding a way to avoid spending August in New Orleans. Um, I would be dishonest if I did not say that, that I saw that very much as a perk uh, when planning this company. It's like, oh, I get to spend the summer in Portland, my favorite city in the universe, but also I get to escape the brutal weather in the deep South because um, I, I got to tell you, you know, being here now and hearing people complain about the heat that we're having in Portland, I have to laugh because it just ain't nothing compared to, to being in New Orleans in August where the humidity is so suffocating. I mean, you go outside and it's like you're walking into a vat of pea soup. So I will take this heat that we're experiencing here any day compared to what it is in, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Incidentally, a city I love very much. Don't get me wrong. I love New Orleans. Love the music, love the food, love the people. Uh, I just really hate the weather between June and September. So we spent a little time here talking about the importance of acoustics. Mm -hmm. And Julia, when you were at Capella Romana, the company participated in a Stanford University research project called Icons of Sound, Aesthetics and Acoustics of Hagia Sophia, Istanbul. Essentially, they wanted to recreate the experience of hearing music under the ancient chapel vault of the Hagia Sophia. Yes, by popping a balloon. <laughs> Their sound people went over and stood in the Hagia Sophia and popped a balloon and measured the, you know, God, please don't ask me for the technical aspects, but measured the reverberations or something and recreated that sound because you couldn't go sing there because it's, you know, they don't let you go there. So the, the album came out as if they were singing in that building. It, it, it was a unique project. I only came in to Capella as uh, the success was going off the rails of that CD. So, and then the pandemic hit. So, but yeah, that, that was very interesting. So for our listeners who might be interested in finding out more about Orpheus PDX and the fall of the House of Usher, where would they look? Well, um, go to our website, orpheuspdx.org. A lot of information there about the opera, its background, and you know you can buy tickets online. Performances are August 25th, 
27th and 28th. That's actually uh, Thursday at 7.30, Saturday at 7.30, and Sunday at 3 o'clock. So three performances the last weekend of August. And you can buy tickets online. And if anyone wants to email me directly, because a number of people have, you could do so at chris at orpheuspdx.org, C-H-R-I-S at orpheuspdx.org. And I'm, I will find a moment to return your email. Chris and Julia, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. This was fun. Yeah, thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to, to catch up and uh, much appreciated. Uh, you've been listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Concer. We've been talking today with Christopher Mitaliano and Julia Sheridan. Chris is the artistic director of Orpheus PDX, and Julia is the publicity consultant. Thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. You can find an archived version of the show later today at kboo.fm slash wordsandpictures. And be sure to follow us on social media at wordsandpicture. Oh,